Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Well, good evening, guys. Um, Excited to open God's Word with you today. If you know much about me, you know that I've lived a lot of my life in the South, and uh, the Southern vernacular is full of uh, colloquialisms that will make you laugh. Uh, Some of them will confuse you, and some will like downright confound you, but uh, I wanted to talk through a couple of my favorites. Uh, First one here is, uh, bless your heart. Now, on the surface, that seems like, uh, you know, some sweet little sentiment, right? Sometimes it's used like that. But most of the time, it's the nicest way that a Southerner can call someone a dummy. Another good one uh, is, who licked the red off your candy? If someone's visibly upset or bothered or downright ticked off, someone might greet you with this funny saying. Um, You're busier than a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. Sometimes I read these in a Southern accent. Um, I'm I'm not really even sure what this one means, honestly, um, but I think it's really funny. If uh, if someone ever invites you uh, over and they're from the South and uh, they invite you to a come to Jesus meeting, uh, there's not going to be a, a lot of praying. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's something you probably don't want to be a part of too often. Um, if someone is described as being madder than a wet hen, uh, yeah, you might want to stay out of their way. Again, I don't have any idea what that one means. Um, but but it's something I don't I, I guess wet foul or angry i don't know anyway uh if someone hears an argument or an idea that they think uh will work they may exclaim now that dog will hunt uh, but one phrase that i've always found really funny and i've always wanted to use is like a cow staring at a new gate now, i have very little experience with cows as you can probably assume um, unless they're on my plate, that is. But I, but I think that the, with the help of the Urban Dictionary and context clues, I understand what this one means. See, cows are not the brightest animal in, in God's kingdom. And when they, when they roam around, if a new obstacle is put in their way, they have very few ideas on how to solve the problem. They, they stare at it in bewilderment and shock and probably some disbelief, if cows are capable of those emotions, I'm not sure. But... When applied to a human, this saying is, uh, it describes someone who, who looks very confused, who are unbelieving. In my mind, this actually perfectly describes the people that are listening to Jesus in John chapter 10. See, they have seen Jesus do incredible things and express amazing wisdom and show astounding compassion. And even with this preponderance of evidence, they approach Jesus with questions that they already know the answers to, or at least they should. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them 
We'll be in John chapter 10. John's in the New Testament of your Bible about three-fourths of the way through. It's one of the four biographies we have of Jesus' life. We'll be in chapter 10, verse 22. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in, in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, these people know Jesus, which actually is part of the reason why they don't believe that he is the foretold Messiah. After all, he's done all of these things. He's done miracles. He's taught extremely well. He's given wisdom that no earthly person could have. Yet after all of this, they ask him who he is. At first glance, you might think that these people are coming to Jesus for confirmation in hopes that he actually is the savior of the world. However, the actions later on in this passage prove that's not the case. In fact, they are asking him to trap him. We also see that the people surrounded him. And the word used here gives us the impression of an army encircling about their next target. Friends, these people, they were coming for blood. Now, to be fair to them, Jesus has only actually called himself the Messiah once at this point in, in John's account. Back in chapter 4, when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, she asks him some questions and he gives her an answer, and then she says, well, well, you know, someday the Messiah will come, and, and he'll make this all clear to us. And Jesus very plainly says, the Messiah you're talking about, that's, that's me. Jesus knows that, that the Jews have the wrong idea about who the Messiah would be. So they assumed that he would be a military leader who would free them from the Roman oppression, However, Jesus came to be a leader who would defeat the Jews and everyone's true enemies. He would defeat sin and hell and death. So Jesus knew the Jews weren't looking for him. They were looking for someone else. So he didn't often say that he was the Messiah. But Jesus made a pretty clear claim to being the Messiah by all the things that he had done and by the things he'd said so far. In chapter 2, he turned water into wine at a family wedding, and then he went to the temple to clean out the extortionists who had set up their shop during the Passover festival. This fulfilled the Old Testament's prophecy about a Messiah's zeal. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist, the most famous preacher of the day, who happened to be Jesus' cousin, declared, declared that Jesus was the Messiah, and that John's ministry must begin to decrease. So Jesus's could increase. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the son of a royal official without ever having met the boy or being anywhere near him. In chapter 5, Jesus sees a man who needs healing. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. And so Jesus heals him. And then he calls himself both the son of God and the son of man, which was how the Messiah was referred to by the Old Testament prophet, a man named Daniel. Then we see Jesus feed 5,000 men plus their wives and children before walking on water and teleporting a ship three miles from the middle of the lake to the shore. And then he claims that he is the bread sent from heaven and that that bread would, would provide eternal life. And in chapter 7, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah. 
we call these words, where we see these words in, in our Bibles in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55. He tells people to come with him, and he would give them the gift of God's Spirit, which only the Messiah, Messiah could do. Continuing to preach in chapter 8, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah, offering to be the light of life for those living in darkness. When Jesus makes his I am statement, I am the light of the world, he again called himself the Son of God. Next, we see Jesus healing a man who was blind from birth, again asserting that he was Lord over the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath. Finally, a few weeks ago in chapter 10, we look at Jesus' claim to be the Good Shepherd, the fulfillment of the theme and the prophecies about the Messiah being a shepherd. So these people, they, they have seen all these things. They know all of these things. And yet they stare at Jesus and ask him a question that they should know the answer to. And I think that these people look at him very much like cows staring at a new gate. But friends, sometimes we're those cows too. When we're faced with a question that we don't have an answer to, we look to Jesus and we don't believe him. When the scan comes back and it's cancer, we look at Jesus and we don't believe him. When your family doesn't respond to the gospel the way that you think they should, you look to Jesus and you don't believe that he can save them. When you try to start a church out of nothing and the room just isn't filling up like you thought it would, you look at Jesus and you don't believe him. We can so easily stare at the obstacles in our lives like cows staring at new gates, befuddled and bewildered doubtful that Jesus can come through. But friends, when, when those things hit, I want us to remember, and if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down, Jesus is who he says he is. Friends, let's not be like the Jews here and forget all that Jesus has said and all that he has done. The Messiah, he came to rescue and save. He did it once and he continues to do it. We cannot forget. We cannot be like the people of Israel who continually forgot what God did for them. We cannot be like the Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was who he said. Friends, this is what he says he is. He says he's our provider, healer, author, our maker, our ransom, our savior, our refuge, our redeemer, our father, comforter, our hope, our strength. He says he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, I don't make a habit of saying this much, but that dog will hunt. Now, Jesus is going to clap back here in the most Jesus way he can. It's a, it's a little sassy, but it's really loving. Verse 25, it says, I did tell you and you don't believe. Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not my, of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So Jesus here says, look, I've done everything I can to prove to you that I am who I say I am. And you still don't believe. But the reason you don't believe is because you aren't my sheep. My sheep know me and when they hear me, they respond. Now, some people would look at this and point to the theology called predestination. They would say that the people will never be sheep because they will never believe, and they will never believe because they are not sheep. But, friends, in the next few verses, Jesus actually is going to invite these people to believe. He's going to make an appeal to them. So if they had no shot to believe, his appeal would be meaningless. And Jesus isn't really into doing meaningless things. By inviting the people to respond, Jesus is weaving personal responsibility with divine sovereignty in a way that no person can adequately describe. Somehow, we have both the responsibility to respond and believe in Jesus, but we have no actual ability to do it. It's hard to believe and it's even harder to explain, but nevertheless, it's true. Now friends, I don't want us to get bogged down in this complex theology Because I want us to see the beautiful truth that Jesus states here. I think what he really wants us to see is that we are his forever. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. We are his forever. Friends, this should be good news. It didn't matter who you were or what you did before you came to Jesus and accepted his forgiveness. He offered it to you fully and freely. And now that you're his, if you've stepped over the line of faith, you will never not be his. Those who belong to him will be protected by him and comforted by him and led by him and loved by him forever. Your salvation and your place in God's family, it's assured. Without exception, once you're in, you're in. Now we call this theology perseverance of the saints, or you might have heard it called once saved, always saved. But honestly, it's, it's just so much more than that. For anyone who's ever lost a friendship due to a falling out and been made to feel like an outsider around people that you called friends, you know how precious it is to always have a friend in Jesus. Those of you who have experienced divorce and having your family torn apart, you have a unique perspective on the truth that Christ will never leave us, his bride. Our family, God's family, will be forever. As a kid who grew up in a broken home, This is beautiful to me. No one can take you from his hand, friend. We are his forever. Now at the end of this response, Jesus says something that really ticks the crowd off again. He says the same thing that he's been saying since the beginning. Him and God are one. He could not make a promise of eternal security if he wasn't God. Now, friends, let me say this. There are people who claim to be Christians that do not believe that Jesus is God. They are woefully misinformed, friends. Jesus could not have done what he did if he wasn't God. And he constantly and he consistently claimed that he was God. In our story, the people, they don't respond well, even though this is not the first time that Jesus has said this. Verse 31 says this, 
Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he called those to whom the word of God came gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them, and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now this is not the first time that people have tried to kill Jesus, and spoiler alert, it won't be the last. But Jesus points out the stupidity of their reasoning. He again points to all the things that he has done and says, For which of these good things are you killing me? A commentary that I read compared this to Rembrandt, the famous painter. Going back to elementary school, and I, and I, I guess coming back to life, after receiving his report card, he looks at his grades one by one, being very pleased, until he sees that he got an F in art. Upon seeing this, he goes to his art teacher and he takes out a masterpiece, and then he takes out another one, and another one, and he lays them down before his teacher, and he says, for which masterpiece am I receiving this F? Jesus has been laying down masterpiece of grace after masterpiece of grace, and now he's asking, for which one do I deserve death? The word good here, it gives us the impression of not just moral excellence, but also beauty and praiseworthiness. Jesus says, for which beautiful and praiseworthy thing do you want to kill me? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds, from the Father. So to fully understand what Jesus is saying, which beautiful and praiseworthy work of God is worthy of me being killed? They correct him by saying they want to kill him not because of his works, but because of his claims. They're incensed because they think that he's a man making himself God, but they have it woefully backward, for in fact, Jesus was God making himself man. His plea for them to believe in verses 37 through 39 is just an incredible display of grace, a display of grace that only a God making himself man could do. The only way that this act of grace could be understood is that Jesus was God. See, they want to kill him. And yet, Jesus, God, putting on man humanity, says, instead of being angry, instead of running away, I still want to save you. What an amazing grace. Now, let me take a moment to talk about a verse that's kind of confusing here. In verse 34, Jesus quotes an ancient Hebrew worship song that we call Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, 6, it says, I said, you are gods. You are all the sons of the Most High. On the surface, this is a pretty confusing verse, and Jesus quoting it can be a little disconcerting. In fact, this verse has given rise to some pretty bad theologies, where people believe that they are little gods, or that one day they will achieve godhood. This is actually a really bad understanding of these verses. See, most likely in Psalm 82, they were, the writer was writing about the judges who led Israel. We learned about them a few weeks ago. 
These men and women carried out a divine function by dispensing justice. So in popular nomenclature, because they were dispensing something that was divine, justice, they were called gods. The little G, not a big G. Here, Jesus is appealing to these people's heritage. He's saying, look, back in the day, regular folks were, were gods. They were called gods. And no one tried to stone them. But now you want to kill me? Now, let me say also, by, by quoting this verse, Jesus wasn't comparing himself to mortal humans who were called gods. Or he wasn't even saying that he was mortal like them. It was more like he was saying, even these people were called God. So how much more does it make sense that I would be called God? I was set apart for this. I was sent by God. I am the son of God. Now our passage ends like this. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier. And he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed him there. With his last sermon, Jesus pretty much ended his public ministry. He would spend the rest of his time on earth pouring into disciples. But I want to point out this last verse. I love the words, many believed him there. That's such a beautiful statement. Many believed. Why did many believe? They saw the signs that Jesus did and knew that no one but the Messiah could do signs like that. Now let me say, I still believe God does miracles. But I believe that the signs that point people to Jesus, I believe that the signs that say that Jesus really is the Messiah today, those signs are the way that we serve our community. It's the way we take care of foster kids and foster families. It's the way that we clothe the naked and feed the hungry and visit the prisoner, welcome the immigrant, run out to greet the prodigal returned home. The signs that point toward Jesus being the Messiah today are the good works that we, his church, his family, his ambassadors do. Friends, if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this last thing down. Jesus is making his appeal through us. I firmly believe that when we serve our communities, we will be able to point to our works. And when, we, when people ask, why, how, how are you so compassionate? Why do you sacrifice your life for the greater good? We can all look and point to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I firmly believe that when we do, when we serve people well, when we love people well, and when they come seeking a reason why, we can point them to Jesus and they will believe. Jesus is using us, church, to do his ministry of reconciling the world to himself. If we go out into the city of Federal Way and do whatever we can to bind up the brokenhearted, to set freedom to the captive, and to comfort those who mourn, they will respond in belief. I believe that with everything inside of me. Point Church, let's be a church where we are known for making people feel seen and heard and known so they see and hear and know Jesus. Let's not be cows staring at the gate of lostness with no hope. Let's believe that Jesus is exactly who he says and that he has come to seek and save our lost friends and family and neighbors because he is the good shepherd who will not let a single sheep go missing.
Let's pray.